Lord, we do thank you that you have provided a way for us to have the peace of God that passes all understanding and that in that peace we can actually rest in you. And as we learn about your rest for us, that you will work in our hearts and help us to truly understand and walk in that rest that others may be drawn to that peace that they see in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week I talked about Jesus' invitation to salvation by saying, come and I will give you rest. Hebrews 3 also talked about God's anger at the Israelites and he swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. I mentioned that the preacher repeated this twice in the third chapter because he wanted to underscore the importance of this warning. Well, I was listening to R.C. Sproul on holiness. Uh, We're going to be doing that in Sunday school. And during one of his messages, he talks about how repeating something was a common way in the Bible to stress the importance of what the writer is saying. For instance, when Paul wrote to the Galatians about their trying to require the Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved. He said that was another gospel. And in Galatians 1 and 8 and 9, Paul says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so say I again, say I again now. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So Paul repeats it twice right here in this one set of two verses. Jesus, when he had something very important to say to his disciples, he would turn to them and he would say, Truly, truly I say unto you, or in the King James, Verily, verily I say unto you. The word is actually amen. Amen, amen, I say unto you, or as we say it in the Baptist church, amen. (laughs) Um, But here's the key. The repetition is stressing something important. And in chapter 3, we saw the preacher look back and warn us two times Now, in the beginning of the fourth chapter, we see this same warning a third time. So if we're understanding that putting things down in repetition as a means to stress importance, this warning is not important, it's not very important, or even very, very important. This warning that we must not harden our hearts is very, very important. Very important. He is trying to stress that this is key 
to our walk with Christ. That it's probably the most important part of our walk with Christ. Because hardening our hearts, being deceived by sin, leads to what? Disobedience. As he said, Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 contain the third repetition of this warning, and I wanted to read it. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. In each of the three repetitions, the preacher also covers different facets of their actions that brought God's wrath. The first says, God swore in his wrath they would not enter because of the hardness of their hearts that led them to disobedience. Being disobedient is the natural state of the unbeliever. It was Adam's disobedience that put everyone at odds with God. The sinner is under God's curse because of disobedience. The preacher's recommendation to the believer is, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's Hebrews 3.13 from the previous chapter. The second says, They were led out of Egypt by Moses and were not able to enter into God's rest because of unbelief. In the third, the preacher does a very specific comparison between us and them in verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Think about everything these people saw and heard up to the time for them to enter into the promised land. The ten plagues. Plague one. Water turned into blood. Plague two, frogs. Plague, plague three, lice. Plague four, a swarm of flies. Plague five, a pestilence on their livestock. Now remember, this was on Egypt's livestock, not on the livestock of, the, of those Israelites that God was protecting. Plague six, boils. Plague seven, thunder and hail and fire. Remember there was thunder and hail fell and the hail started burning. I'll tell you, that, that's got to be some sight to see. Plague eight, locusts. Plague nine, three days of darkness. And then finally, the tenth plague, the firstborn of all Egypt, not just 
the Egyptian children and adults who were firstborn, but all of their livestock. Everything, the firstborn, died. Finally, Pharaoh let them go. So Moses led them out of Egypt, and Pharaoh came chasing back after them, and again, Moses parted the Red Sea. They went through on dry ground, and then as Pharaoh continued to pursue, what happened? The water came down and destroyed his army. All this time, they saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet, when God told them, I have given you this land, take it, they didn't believe. That's astounding to think of the fact that they saw all these miracles, and yet they did not trust God. It's just astounding. Hebrews 4, 3 to 7 continues. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said something concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day, today, saying, through David, after so long a time, just as he has said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The key to entering his rest is combining faith with his message. James 2, 19 and 20 says this, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Paul said this in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now it seems at first blush that these two verses or these two passages seem to contradict each other, but that is not the case. They're actually complementing each other and creating a, a, a whole. Let me illustrate this with a chair. I'm going to grab a chair over here. Can everybody see the chair? Okay. I believe that this chair will support me. Okay. I hope it will support me. 
Now, how do I prove to you that I truly trust this chair? I have to sit down in it. You mean like this? Okay. <laughs> I see some people going, <laughs> So, I am sitting in this chair. Now, I have a question for you. What is keeping me off of the floor? What's doing all the work? The chair itself, right? The chair is keeping me from landing on the floor. In other words, this chair is doing all of the work. And I am resting in this chair. And that's what the believer's rest is about, is this action. It's not just saying, I believe. What James was getting at was mere profession versus actual genuine trust. See, he said, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What he was saying was, if you profess, it means nothing. If you truly trust, you'll have works. Paul also said this, and, and this works together with this as well. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so no one could boast. Again, it seems like what he's talking about here is faith alone, nothing else. Now, here's the key. My salvation is faith alone, but it's genuine faith, not profession. It's not intellectual mental assent. It's actually putting my trust in Christ. Turning to him and trusting him. Ephesians 2.10, which is immediately following, provides full context for what Paul is saying here because he says in 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we would walk in them. So there is no contradiction between these two ideas. If I have genuine faith, I will also have genuine works. And remember, the chair did all the work, and I got the benefit from that work. In the same way, the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting when I rest in his strength to do those good works. So what is the key to all this? As the preacher reminds us in this passage, obedience. That's a hard word. That's one that I always say ouch to when I see it, but it's a key word in our lives. Hebrews 4, 5, and 6 
And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. See, they didn't enter because they disobeyed. Hebrews 4, 8 to 11 continue. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Boy, I'll tell you, disobedience as a negative thing is a lot about what he's saying here. And the opposite of that is obedience. It's ironic that Jesus came to give us a rest. And one of the biggest complaints the Pharisees had against him was, he did not keep the Sabbath their way. Over the centuries, they kept on piling on rules, defining work, so they knew what work was. This quote comes from a book called 20 Questions God Wants to Ask You. And I quote, The commandment says that there must be no work on the Sabbath. The scribe immediately asks, What is work? Work is then defined under 39 different heads, which are called fathers of work. One of the things which are forbidden is the carrying of a burden. Immediately the scribe asks, what is a burden? So in the Mishnah, there is a definition after definition of what constitutes a burden. Milk enough for a gulp. Honey enough to put on a sore. Oil enough to anoint the smallest member, which is further defined as the little toe of a child one day old. Water enough to rub off an eye plaster. Leather enough to make an amulet. Ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. Coarse sand enough to cover a plasterer's trowel. Reed enough to make a pen. A pebble big enough to throw at a bird. And anything which weighs as much as two dried figs. That's a whole lot of rules to follow. Obedience is not following rules. I can define obedience in five simple words. Do what he tells you. Five. But, 
God never tells me anything. Really? Do you read the Bible? There are other ways God speaks to us. Say you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off. So you get angry. And you want to give that dangerous driver a taste of their own medicine. Something inside you says, that's not a safe thing to do. And it's certainly not the right thing to do. Do you listen to that voice? Every day, God prompts us with our conscience to do the right thing. Luke 16.10 says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. God uses that still small voice of our conscience to guide us. We must listen very carefully. We must also learn from his word and spend time in prayer so we can tell when he is prompting us and it's not just some voice inside of our head telling us to do things. In other words, when I get this feeling that I should do something, I should ask, does this match up with Scripture? There's also no harm in praying and asking for advice from other believers. Usually the things that require immediate attention are small and easy to discern, like, I guess I should hold my tongue and be more patient. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 tell us that the Word of God is what gives us the power to walk in obedience. It says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word translated active here is the same word we get energetic from, or energy. So the word is energetic. It provides energy to do. It provides energy and gives us life. The word is also sharper than any two-edged sword. Joni mentioned that there, were, there was a question about the difference between the soul and the spirit. And since Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God can make a distinction between the soul and the spirit. I thought this would be a good time to talk about it a little bit. When God told Adam the day he ate of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, he would die, did he just kill over and die right then? No, his body stayed alive. So was God a liar? No. So what happened to Adam? What happened to Adam was his spirit died. 
And we see, we, we can also ask this question. Did he stop thinking or making choices or feeling emotions? He hid from God because he was afraid. He certainly made other choices, tried to hide himself with fig leaves, all the other things he was trying to do. When he hid from God, he hid from God because he no longer saw God in the same way. He was a sinner. He was spiritually dead. That spirit that was inside of him, that God created in him, died. And every one of us was born dead. Remember in Ephesians, Paul told us that he made us alive in him. How did he make us alive? He made our spirit alive. Now, what I think the distinction of the soul, and this is mostly myself, but I, I think it lines up with the scriptures. I believe the soul is all that we understand that makes us uniquely a person. Everybody knows what the body is. You know, it's this, what's standing here in front of you? What's making this big noise? We have intellect, emotion, and will. We can make choices. We feel love. We feel anger. We feel hate. And before salvation, we had all those things. These did not change in our lives, but something did when we got saved. First, Paul tells us he made us alive in the Holy Spirit, and he came to live inside of us. I believe that what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 14 to 7, gives us a good picture of what happened to us. And in, doing the, and, and in doing this helps us to understand what our spirit is. Okay, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, being led by the Spirit of God, that's being obedient, isn't it? These are the sons of God, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, just as Adam did when he hid from God, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. The key phrase here is the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. Our spirit is that part of us which is able to perceive and communicate with God. Before we were saved, we had no capacity in that way. The Spirit came and woke us up 
and enabled us to understand and perceive the message of salvation. We made a choice to receive that message and obey it and became alive. And now our spirit is able to communicate directly with God. Remember, if I am a genuine believer, my spirit is alive. The Holy Spirit is in me, talking to me. I should listen carefully and do what he tells me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the message that woke us up the message that gave us new life, the message that allows us to rest in your strength. We thank you that we can trust in you and we can call you Abba, Father. We pray that you'll give us the strength to walk in obedience, to live that life that others see, that they may desire that peace that they see in us. I pray that you'll work in all of us here as a congregation to be that light that shines in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.